This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. My Man Jeeves by P. G. Wodehouse. 1. Leave it to Jeeves. Jeeves, my man, you know, is really a most extraordinary chap. So capable. Honestly, I shouldn't know what to do without him. On broader lines, he's like those chappies who sit peering sadly over the marble battlements at the Pennsylvania station, in the place marked Inquiries. You know the Johnnies, I mean. You go up to them and say, When's the next train for Mellon Squashville, Tennessee? And they reply, without stopping to think, 243, track 10, change at San Francisco. And they're right every time. Well, Jeeves gives you just the same impression of omniscience. As an instance of what I mean, I remember meeting Monty Bing in Bond Street one morning, looking the last word in a gray check suit, and I felt I should never be happy till I had one like it. I dug the address of the tailors out of him, and had them working on the thing inside the hour. Jeeves, I said that evening, I'm getting a check suit, like that one of Mr. Bing's. Injudicious, sir, he said firmly, it will not become you. What absolute rot! It's the soundest thing I've struck for years. Unsuitable for you, sir. Well, the long and the short of it was that the confounded thing came home and I put it on, and when I caught sight of myself in the glass I nearly swooned. Jeeves was perfectly right. I looked across between a music-hall comedian and a cheap bookie. Yet Monty had looked fine in absolutely the same stuff. These things are just life's mysteries, and that's all there is to it. But it isn't only that Jeeves' judgment about clothes is infallible— though, of course, that's really the main thing. The man knows everything. There was the matter of that tip on the Lincolnshire. I forgot now how I got it, but it had the aspect of being the real red-hot Tabasco. Jeeves, I said, for I'm fond of the man, and I like to do him a good turn when I can. If you want to make a bit of money, have something on Wonderchild for the Lincolnshire. He shook his head. I'd rather not, sir. But it's the straight goods. I'm going to put my shirt on him. I do not recommend it, sir. The animal is not intended to win. Second place is what the stable is after. Perfect piffle, I thought, of course. How the deuce could Jeeves know anything about it? Still, you know what happened. Wonderchild led till he was breathing on the wire and then Banana Fritter came along and nosed him out. I went straight home and rang for Jeeves. After this, I said, not another step for me without your advice. From now on, consider yourself the brains of the establishment. Very good, sir. I shall endeavor to give satisfaction. And he has, by Jove. I'm a bit short on brain myself, the old bean would appear to have been constructed more for ornament than for use, don't you know? But give me five minutes to talk the thing over with Jeeves, and I'm game to advise anyone about anything. 
and that's why, when Bruce Corcoran came to me with his troubles, my first act was to ring the bell and put it up to the lad with the bulging forehead. Leave it to Jeeves, I said. I first got to know Corky when I came to New York. He was a pal of my cousin Gussie, who was in with a lot of people down Washington Square way. I don't know if I ever told you about it, but the reason why I left England was because I was sent over by my Aunt Agatha to try and stop young Gussie marrying a girl on the vaudeville stage, and I got the whole thing so mixed up that I decided that it would be a sound scheme for me to stop on in America for a bit instead of going back and having long cozy chats about the thing with Aunt. So I sent Jeeves out to find a decent apartment and settled down for a bit of exile. I'm bound to say that New York's a topping place to be exiled in. Everybody was awfully good to me, and there seemed to be plenty of things going on, and I'm a wealthy bird, so everything was fine. Chappies introduced me to other chappies, and so on and so forth, and it wasn't long before I knew squads of the right sort, some who rolled in dollars in houses up by the park, and others who lived with the gas turned down, mostly around Washington Square artists and writers and so forth, brainy coves. Corky was one of the artists. A portrait painter, he called himself, but he hadn't painted any portraits. He was sitting on the sidelines with a blanket over his shoulders, waiting for a chance to get in the game. You see, the catch about portrait painting, I've looked into the thing a bit, is that you can't start painting portraits till people come along and ask you to, and they won't come and ask you until you've painted a lot first. This makes it kind of difficult for a chappie. Corky managed to get along by drawing an occasional picture for the comic papers. He had a rather gift for the funny stuff when he got a good idea, and doing bedsteads and chairs and things for the advertisements. His principal source of income, however, was derived from biting the ear of a rich uncle, one Alexander Warple, who was in the jute business. I'm a bit foggy as to what jute is, but it's apparently something the populace is pretty keen on, for Mr. Warple had made quite an indecently large stack out of it. Now, a great many fellows think that having a rich uncle is a pretty soft snap, but, according to Corky, such is not the case. Corky's uncle was a robust sort of cove who looked like living forever. He was fifty-one, but it seemed as if he might go to par. It was not this, however, that distressed poor old Corky, for he was not bigoted, and had no objection to the man going on living. What Corky kicked at was the way the above Warple used to harry him. Corky's uncle, you see, didn't want him to be an artist. He didn't think he had any talent in that direction. He was always urging him to chuck art and go into the jute business, and start at the bottom and work his way up. Jute had apparently become a sort of obsession with him, he seemed to attach an almost spiritual importance to it. And what Corky said was that, while he didn't know what they did at the bottom of the jute business, instinct told him it was something too beastly for words. Corky, moreover, believed in his future as an artist. Some day, he said, he was going to make a hit. Meanwhile, by using the utmost tact and persuasiveness, he was inducing his uncle to cough up very grudgingly a small quarterly allowance. He wouldn't have gotten this if his uncle hadn't had a hobby. Mr. Warple was peculiar in this respect. As a rule, from what I've observed, the American captain of industry doesn't do anything out of business hours. 
when he has put the cat out and locked up the office for the night, he just relapses into a state of coma from which he emerges only to start being a captain of industry again. But Mr. Warple in his spare time was what is known as an ornithologist. He had written a book called American Birds, and was writing another, to be called More American Birds. When he'd finished that, the presumption was that he would begin a third, and keep on till the supply of American birds gave out. Corky used to go to him about once every three months, and let him talk about American birds. Apparently, you could do what you liked with old Warple if you gave him his head first on his pet subject, so these little chats used to make Corky's allowance all right for the time being. But it was pretty rotten for the poor chap. There was the frightful suspense, you see, and, apart from that, birds, except when broiled and in the society of a cold bottle, bored him stiff. To complete the character study of Mr. Warple, he was a man of extremely uncertain temper, and his general tendency was to think that Corky was a poor chump, and that whatever step he took in any direction on his own account was just another proof of his innate idiocy. I should imagine Jeeves feels very much the same about me. So when Corky trickled into my apartment one afternoon, shooing in a girl in front of him, and said, Bertie, I want you to meet my fiancée, Miss Singer. The aspect of the matter which hit me first was precisely the one which he had come to consult me about. The very first words I spoke were, Corky, what about your uncle? The poor chap gave one of those mirthless laughs. He was looking anxious and worried, like a man who has done the murder all right, but can't think what the deuce to do with the body. "'We're so scared, Mr. Wooster,' said the girl. "'We were hoping that you might suggest a way of breaking it to him.' Muriel Singer was one of those very quiet, appealing girls who gave a way of looking at you with their big eyes as if they thought you were the greatest thing on earth and wondered that you hadn't got on to it yet yourself. She sat there in a sort of shrinking way, looking at me as if she were saying to herself, "'Oh, I do hope this great strong man isn't going to hurt me.' She gave a fellow a protective kind of feeling, made him want to stroke her hand and say, "'There, there, little one,' or words to that effect. She made me feel that there was nothing I wouldn't do for her. She was rather like one of those innocent-tasting American drinks, which creep imperceptibly into your system so that, before you know what you're doing, you're starting out to reform the world by force if necessary, and pausing on your way to tell the large man in the corner that, if he looks at you like that, you will knock his head off. What I mean is, she made me feel alert and dashing, like a jolly old knight-errant or something of that kind. I felt that I was with her in this thing to the limit." "'I don't see why your uncle shouldn't be most awfully bucked,' I said to Corky. "'He will think Miss Singer is the ideal wife for you.' Corky declined to cheer up. "'You don't know him. "'Even if he did like Muriel, he wouldn't admit it. "'That's the sort of pig-headed guy he is. "'It would be a matter of principle with him to kick. "'All he would consider would be that "'I had gone and taken an important step without asking his advice.' and he would raise Cain automatically. He's always done it. I strained the old bean to meet this emergency. You want to work it 
so that he makes Miss Singer's acquaintance without knowing that you know her. Then you come along. But how can I work it that way? I saw his point. That was the catch. There's only one thing to do, I said. What's that? Leave it to Jeeves. And I rang the bell. Sir, said Jeeves, kind of manifesting himself. One of the rummy things about Jeeves is that, unless you watch like a hawk, you very seldom see him come into a room. He's like one of those weird chappies in India who dissolve themselves into thin air and nip through space in a sort of disembodied way and assemble the parts again just where they want them. I've got a cousin who's what they call a theosophist, and he says he's often nearly worked the thing himself, but couldn't quite bring it off, probably owing to having fed in his boyhood on the flesh of animals slain in anger and pie. The moment I saw the man standing there, registering respectful attention, a weight seemed to roll off my mind. I felt like a lost child who spots his father in the offing. There was something about him that gave me confidence. Jeeves is a tallish man with one of those dark, shrewd faces. His eye gleams with the light of pure intelligence. Jeeves, we want your advice. Very good, sir. I boiled down Corky's painful case into a few well-chosen words. So, you see what it amount to, Jeeves. We want you to suggest some way by which Mr. Warple can make Miss Singer's acquaintance without getting on to the fact that Mr. Corcoran already knows her. Understand? Perfectly, sir. Well, try to think of something. I have thought of something already, sir. You have. The scheme I would suggest cannot fail of success, but it has what may seem to you a drawback, sir, in that it requires a certain financial outlay. He means, I translated to Corky, that he has got a pippin of an idea, but it's going to cost a bit. Naturally, the poor chap's face dropped, for this seemed to dish the whole thing. But I was still under the influence of the girl's melting gaze, and I saw that this was where I started in as knight-errant. "'You can count on me for all that sort of thing, Corky,' I said. "'Only too glad. Carry on, Jeeves.' I would suggest, sir, that Mr. Corcoran take advantage of Mr. Warple's attachment to ornithology. How on earth did you know that he was fond of birds? It is the way these New York apartments are constructed, sir, quite unlike our London houses. The partitions between the rooms are of the flimsiest nature. With no wish to overhear, I have sometimes heard Mr. Corcoran expressing himself with a generous strength on the subject I have mentioned. Oh, well? Why should not the young lady write a small volume, to be entitled, let us say, The Children's Book of American Birds, and dedicate it to Mr. Warple? A limited edition could be published at your expense, sir, and a great deal of the book would, of course, be given over to eulogistic remarks concerning Mr. Warple's own larger treatise on the same subject. I should recommend the dispatching of a presentation copy to Mr. Warple immediately on publication, accompanied by a letter in which the young lady asks to be allowed to make the acquaintance of one to whom she owes so much. This would, I fancy, produce the desired result, 
but, as I say, the expense involved would be considerable. I felt like the proprietor of a performing dog on the vaudeville stage, when the tyke has just pulled off his trick without a hitch. I had betted on Jeeves all along, and I had known that he wouldn't let me down. It beats me sometimes why a man with his genius is satisfied to hang around pressing my clothes and what not. If I had half Jeeves' brain, I should have a stab at being Prime Minister or something. Jeeves, I said, that is absolutely ripping. One of your very best efforts. Thank you, sir. The girl made an objection. But I'm sure I couldn't write a book about anything. I can't even write good letters. Muriel's talents, said Corky, with a little cough, lie more in the direction of the drama, Bertie. I didn't mention it before, but one of our reasons for being a trifle nervous as to how Uncle Alexander will receive the news is that Muriel is in the chorus of that show, Choose Your Exit, at the Manhattan. It's absurdly unreasonable, but we both feel that that fact might increase Uncle Alexander's natural tendency to kick like a steer. I saw what he meant. Goodness knows there was fuss enough in our family when I tried to marry into musical comedy a few years ago, and the recollection of my Aunt Agatha's attitude in the matter of Gussie and the vaudeville girl was still fresh in my mind. I didn't know why it is. One of these psychology sharps could explain it, I suppose, but uncles and aunts, as a class, are always dead against the drama, legitimate or otherwise. They don't seem able to stick it at any price. But Jeeves had a solution, of course. I fancy it would be a simple matter, sir, to find some impecunious author who would be glad to do the actual composition of the volume for a small fee. It is only necessary that the young lady's name should appear on the title page. That's true, said Corky. Sam Patterson would do it for a hundred dollars. He writes a novelette, three short stories, and ten thousand words of a serial for one of those all-fiction magazines under different names every month. A little thing like this would be nothing to him. I'll get after him right away. Fine. Will that be all, sir? said Jeeves. A very good, sir. Thank you, sir. I always used to think that publishers had to be devilish intelligent fellows, loaded down with the gray matter. But I've got their number now. All a publisher has to do is write checks at intervals, while a lot of deserving and industrious chappies rally round and do the real work. I know, because I've been one myself. I simply sat tight in the old apartment with a fountain pen, and in due season a topping shiny book came along. I happened to be down at Corky's place when the first copies of The Children's Book of American Birds bobbed up. Muriel Singer was there, and we were talking of things in general when there was a bang at the door and the parcel was delivered. It was certainly some book. It had a red cover with a fowl of some species on it, and underneath the girl's name in gold letters. I opened a copy at random. Often of a spring morning, it said at the top of page 21, as you wander through the fields, you will hear the sweet-toned, carelessly flowing warble of the purple finch linnet. When you are older, you must read all about him in Mr. Alexander Warple's wonderful book, American Birds. You see, a boost for the uncle right away. 
and only a few pages later there he was in the limelight again in connection with the yellow-billed cuckoo. It was great stuff. The more I read, the more I admired the chap who had written it, and Jeeves' genius in putting us on to the wheeze. I didn't see how the uncle could fail to drop. You can't call a chap the world's greatest authority on the yellow-billed cuckoo without rousing a certain disposition towards chumminess in him. It's a cert, I said. An absolute cinch, said Corky. And a day or two later, he meandered up the avenue to my apartment to tell me that all was well. The uncle had written Muriel a letter so dripping with the milk of human kindness that if he hadn't known Mr. Warple's handwriting, Corky would have refused to believe him the author of it. Any time it suited Miss Singer to call, said the uncle, he would be delighted to make her acquaintance. Shortly after this, I had to go out of town. Divers Sound sportsmen had invited me to pay visits to their country places, and it wasn't for several months that I settled down in the city again. I had been wondering a lot, of course, about Corky, whether it all turned out all right and so forth, and my first evening in New York happened to pop into a quiet sort of little restaurant, which I go to when I don't feel inclined for the bright lights. I found Muriel Singer there, sitting by herself at a table near the door. Corky, I took it, was out telephoning. I went up and passed the time of day. "'Well, well, well, what?' I said. "'Why, Mr. Wooster, how do you do?' "'Corky around?' "'I beg your pardon?' "'You are waiting for Corky, aren't you?' "'Oh, I didn't understand. No, I'm not waiting for him.' It seemed to Roe that there was a sort of something in her voice, a kind of thingummy, you know. "'I say,' You haven't had a row with Corky, have you? A row? A spat, don't you know? Little misunderstanding? Faults on both sides, or and all that sort of thing? Why, whatever makes you think that? Oh, well, as it were, what? What I mean is, I thought you usually dined with him before you went to the theater. I've left the stage now. Suddenly the whole thing dawned on me. I had forgotten what a long time I had been away. "'Why, of course, I see now. You're married.' "'Yes.' "'How perfectly topping. I wish you all kinds of happiness.' "'Thank you so much.' "'Oh, Alexander,' she said, looking past me. "'This is a friend of mine, Mr. Wooster.' I spun around. A chappie with a lot of stiff gray hair and a red sort of healthy face was standing there. Rather a formidable Johnny, he looked, though quite peaceful at the moment.' I want you to meet my husband, Mr. Wooster. Mr. Wooster is a friend of Bruce's, Alexander. The old boy grasped my hand warmly, and that was all that kept me from hitting the floor in a heap. The place was rocking, absolutely. So, you know my nephew, Mr. Wooster, I heard him say. I wish you would try to knock a little sense into him and make him quit this playing at painting. But I have an idea that he is steadying down. I noticed at first that night he came to dinner with us, my dear, to be introduced to you. He seemed altogether quieter and more serious. Something seemed to have sobered him. Perhaps you will give us the pleasure of your company at dinner tonight, Mr. Wooster, or have you dined? I said I had. What I needed then was air, not dinner. I felt that I wanted to get into the open and think this thing out. When I reached my apartment, I heard Jeeves moving about in his lair. I called him. Jeeves, I said, 
Now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of the party. A stiff B and S, first of all, and then I've got a bit of news for you. He came back with a tray and a long glass. Better have one yourself, Jeeves. You'll need it. Later on, perhaps. Thank you, sir. All right. Please yourself. But you're going to get a shock. You remember my friend, Mr. Corcoran? Yes, sir. And the girl who was to slide gracefully into his uncle's esteem by writing the book on birds? Perfectly, sir. Well, she's slid. She's married the uncle. He took it without blinking. You can't rattle Jeeves. That was always a development to be feared, sir. You don't mean to tell me you were expecting it. It crossed my mind as a possibility. Did it, by Jove. Well, I think you might have warned us. I hardly liked to take the liberty, sir. Of course, as I saw after I had had a bite to eat and was in a calmer frame of mind, what had happened wasn't my fault, if it came down to it. I couldn't be expected to foresee that the scheme, in itself a crackerjack, would skid into the ditch as it had done. But all the same, I'm bound to admit that I didn't relish the idea of meeting Corky again until time, the great healer, had been able to get in a bit of soothing work. I cut Washington Square out absolutely for the next few months. I gave it the complete misinbalk. And then, just when I was beginning to think I might safely pop down in that direction and gather up the dropped threads, so to speak, time, instead of working thy healing wheeze, went and pulled the most awful bone and put the lid on it. Opening the paper one morning, I read that Mrs. Alexander Warple had presented her husband with a son and heir. I was so darn sorry for poor old Corky that I hadn't the heart to touch my breakfast. I told Jeeves to drink it himself. I was bowled over. Absolutely. It was the limit. I hardly knew what to do. I wanted, of course, to rush down to Washington Square and grip the poor blighter silently by the hand. And then, thinking it over, I hadn't the nerve. Absent treatment seemed the touch. I gave it to him in waves. But after a month or so, I began to hesitate again. It struck me that it was playing it a bit low down on the poor chap, avoiding him like this just when he probably wanted his pals to surge round him most. I pictured him sitting in his lonely studio with no company but his bitter thoughts, and the pathos of it got to me to such an extent that I bounded straight into a taxi and told the driver to go all out for the studio. I rushed in, and there was Corky, hunched up at the easel, painting away while on the model throne sat a severe-looking woman of middle age holding a baby. A fellow has to be ready for that sort of thing. Oh, ah, I said and started to back out. Corky looked over his shoulder. Hello, Bertie. Don't go. We're just finishing for the day. That will be all this afternoon, he said to the nurse, who got up with the baby and decanted it into a perambulator which was standing in the fairway. At the same time tomorrow, Mr. Corcoran? Yes, please. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Corky stood there, looking at the door, and then he turned to me and began to get it off his chest. Fortunately, he seemed to take it for granted that I knew all about what had happened, so it wasn't as awkward as it might have been. It's my uncle's idea, he said. Muriel doesn't know about it yet. 
the portrait's to be a surprise for her birthday party. The nurse takes the kid out, ostensibly to get a breather, and they beat it down here. If you want to get an instance of the irony of fate, Bertie, get acquainted with this. Here's the first commission I have ever had to paint a portrait, and the sitter is that human poached egg that has butted in and bounced me out of my inheritance. Can you beat it? I call it rubbing the thing in to expect me to spend my afternoons gazing into the ugly face of that little brat, who to all intents and purposes has hit me behind the ear with a blackjack and swiped all I possess. I can't refuse to paint the portrait, because if I did, my uncle would stop my allowance. Yet, every time I look up and catch that kid's vacant eye, I suffer agonies. I tell you, Bertie, sometimes when he gives me a patronizing glance and then turns away and is sick, as if it revolted him to look at me, I come within an ace of occupying the entire front page of the evening papers as the latest murder sensation. There are moments when I can almost see the headlines. Promising young artist beans baby with axe. I patted his shoulder silently. My sympathy for the poor old scout was too deep for words. I kept away from the studio for some time after that, because it didn't seem right to me to intrude on the poor chappie's sorrow. Besides, I'm bound to say that nurse intimidated me. She reminded me so infernally of Aunt Agatha. She was the same gimlet-eyed type. But one afternoon, Corky called me on the phone. Bertie. Hello? Are you doing anything this afternoon? Nothing special. You couldn't come down here, could you? What's the trouble? Anything up? I've finished the portrait. Well, good boy. Stout work. Yes. His voice sounded rather doubtful. The fact is, Bertie, it doesn't look quite right to me. There's something about it. My uncle's coming in half an hour to inspect it, and I don't know why it is, but I kind of feel I'd like your moral support. I began to see that I was letting myself in for something. The sympathetic cooperation of G seemed to me to be indicated. You think you'll cut up rough? He may. I threw my mind back to the red-faced chappie I'd met at the restaurant and tried to picture him cutting up rough. It was only too easy. I spoke to Corky firmly on the telephone. I'll come, I said. Good. But only if I may bring Jeeves. Why Jeeves? What's Jeeves got to do with it? Who wants Jeeves? Jeeves is the fool who suggested the scheme that is led. Listen, Corky, old top. If you think I'm going to face that uncle of yours without Jeeves' support, you're mistaken. I'd sooner go into a den of wild beasts and bite a lion on the back of the neck. Oh, all right, said Corky. Not cordially, but he said it. So I rang for Jeeves and explained the situation. Very good, sir, said Jeeves. That's the sort of chap he is. You can't rattle him. We found Corky near the door looking at the picture, with one hand up in a defensive sort of way, as if he thought it might swing on him. Stand right where you are, Bertie, he said without moving. Now, tell me honestly, how does it strike you? The light from the big window fell right on the picture. I took a good look at it. Then I shifted a bit nearer and took another look. Then I went back to where I'd been at first, 
because it hadn't seen quite so bad from there. Well, said Corky anxiously, I hesitated a bit. Of course, old man, I only saw the kid once, and then only for a moment, but, but, it was an ugly sort of kid, wasn't it, if I remember rightly? As ugly as that? I looked again, and honesty compelled me to be frank. I don't see how it could have been, old chap. Poor old Corky ran his fingers through his hair in a temperamental sort of way. He groaned. You're right, Bertie. Something's gone wrong with the darn thing. My private impression is that, without knowing it, I've worked that stunt that Sergeant and those fellows pull, painting the soul of the sitter. I've got through the mere outward appearance, and I've put the child's soul on canvas. But could a child of that age have a soul like that? I don't see how he could have managed it in the time. What do you think, Jeeves? I doubt it, sir. It... it sort of leers at you, doesn't it? You've noticed that, too, said Corky. I don't see how one could help noticing. All I tried to do was give the little brute a cheerful expression. But, as it turned out, he looks positively dissipated. Just what I was going to suggest, old man. He looks as if he were in the middle of a colossal spree, and enjoying every minute of it. Don't you think so, Jeeves? He has a decidedly inebriated air, sir. Corky was starting to say something when the door opened, and the uncle came in. For about three seconds all was joy, jollity, and goodwill. The old boy shook hands with me, slapped Corky on the back, said that he didn't think he had ever seen such a fine day, and whacked his leg with his stick. Jeeves had projected himself into the background, and he didn't notice him. "'Well, Bruce, my boy, so the portrait is finally finished, is it? Really finished. Well, bring it out. Let's have a look at it. This will be a wonderful surprise for your aunt. Well, where is it? Let's—' And then he got it. Suddenly, when he wasn't set for the punch, and he rocked back on his heels. "'Oosh!' he exclaimed. And for perhaps a minute there was one of the scaliest silences I have ever run up against. "'Is this a practical joke?' he said at last, in a way that set about sixteen drafts cutting through the room at once. I thought it was up to me to rally round old Corky. "'You want to stand a bit farther away from it,' I said. "'You're perfectly right,' he snorted. "'I do. I want to stand so far away from it I can't see the thing with a telescope.' He turned on Corky like an untamed tiger of the jungle who has just located a chunk of meat. And this, this, is what you have been wasting your time and my money for all these years? A painter? I wouldn't let you paint a house of mine. I gave you this commission, thinking that you were a competent worker, and this, this, this extract from a comic-colored supplement is the result. He swung towards the door, lashing his tail and growling to himself. This ends it. If you wish to continue this foolery of pretending to be an artist because you want an excuse for idleness, please yourself. But let me tell you this. Unless you report at my office on Monday morning, prepared to abandon all this idiocy and start at the bottom of the business to work your way up, 
as you should have a half-dozen years ago, not another cent. Not another cent. Not another. Boosh. Then the door closed, and he was no longer with us, and I crawled out of the bomb-proof shelter. Corky, old top, I whispered faintly. Corky was standing staring at the picture. His face was set. There was a hunted look in his eye. Well, that finishes it, he muttered brokenly. What are you going to do? Do? What can I do? I can't stick on here if he cuts off supplies. You heard what he said. I shall have to go to the office on Monday. I couldn't think of a thing to say. I knew exactly how he felt about the office. I don't know when I've been so infernally uncomfortable. It was just like hanging round trying to make conversation to a pal who's just been sentenced to twenty years in quad. And then a soothing voice broke the silence. If I might make a suggestion, sir. It was Jeeves. He had slid from the shadows and was gazing gravely at the picture. Upon my word, I can't give you a better idea of the shattering effect of Corky's Uncle Alexander when in action than by saying that he had absolutely made me forget for the moment that Jeeves was there. I wonder if I have ever happened to mention to you, sir, a Mr. Digby Thistleton, with whom I was once in service. Perhaps you have met him. He was a financier. He is now Lord Bridgenorth. It was a favorite saying of his that there is always a way. The first time I heard him use the expression was after the failure of a patent depilatory which he promoted. "'Jeeves,' I said, "'what on earth are you talking about?' "'I mentioned Mr. Thistleton, sir, because his was in some respects a parallel case to the present one. His depilatory failed, but he did not despair.' he put it on the market again under the name of Harrow, guaranteed to produce a full crop of hair in a few months. It was advertised, if you remember, sir, by a humorous picture of a billiard-ball, before and after taking, and made such a substantial fortune that Mr. Thistleton was soon afterwards elevated to the peerage for services to his party. It seems to me that, if Mr. Corcoran looks into the matter, he will find that, like Mr. Thistleton, there is always a way. Mr. Warple himself suggested the solution of the difficulty. In the heat of the moment, he compared the portrait to an extract from a colored comic supplement. I consider the suggestion a very valuable one, sir. Mr. Corcoran's portrait may not have pleased Mr. Warple as a likeness of his only child, but I have no doubt that editors would gladly consider it as a foundation for a series of humorous drawings. If Mr. Corcoran will allow me to make the suggestion, his talent has always been for the humorous. There is something about this picture, something bold and vigorous, which arrests the attention. I feel sure it would be highly popular. Corky was glaring at the picture, and making a sort of dry, sucking noise with his mouth. He seemed completely overwrought. And then, suddenly, he began to laugh in a wild way. "'Corky, old man,' I said, massaging him tenderly, 
I feared the poor blighter was hysterical. He began to stagger about all over the floor. He's right. The man's absolutely right. Jeeves, you're a lifesaver. You've hit on the greatest idea of the age. Report at the office on Monday, start at the bottom of the business, I'll buy the business if I feel like it. I know the man who runs the comic section of the Sunday Star. He'll eat this thing. He was telling me only the other day how hard it was to get a good new series. He'll give me anything I ask for a real winner like this. I've got a gold mine. Where's my hat? I've got an income for life. Where's that confounded hat? Uh, lend me a fiver, Bertie. I want to take a taxi down to Park Row. Jeeves smiled paternally. Or rather, he had a kind of paternal muscular spasm about the mouth, which is the nearest he ever gets to smiling. If I might make the suggestion, Mr. Corcoran, for a title of the series which you have in mind. The Adventures of Baby Blobs. Corky and I looked at the picture, then at each other in an awed way. Jeeves was right. There could be no other title. Jeeves, I said. It was a few weeks later, and I had just finished looking at the comic section of the Sunday Star. I'm an optimist. I always have been. The older I get, the more I agree with Shakespeare and those poet johnnies about it always being darkest before the dawn, and, and there's a silver lining, and what you lose on the swings you make up on the roundabouts. Look at Mr. Corcoran, for instance. There was a fellow, one would have said, clear up to the eyebrows in the soup. To all appearances, he had got it right in the neck. Yet, look at him now. Have you seen these pictures? I took the liberty of glancing at them before bringing them to you, sir. Extremely diverting. They have made a big hit, you know. I anticipated it, sir. I leaned back against the pillows. You know, Jeeves, you're a genius. You ought to be drawing a commission on these things. I have nothing to complain of in that respect, sir. Mr. Corcoran has been most generous. I am putting out the brown suit, sir. No, I think I'll wear the blue with the faint red stripe. Not the blue with the faint red stripe, sir. But I rather fancy myself in it. Not the blue with the faint red stripe, sir. Oh, all right. Have it your own way. Very good, sir. Thank you, sir. Of course, I know it's as bad as being henpecked, but then Jeeves is always right. You have to consider that, you know. What? End of Leave it to Jeeves This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. My Man Jeeves by P. G. Wodehouse. 2. Jeeves and the Unbidden Guest. I'm not absolutely certain of my facts, but I rather fancy it's Shakespeare, or if not, 
it's some equally brainy lad, who says that it's always just when a chappy is feeling particularly top-hole, and more than usually braced with things in general, that fate sneaks up behind him with a bit of lead piping. There's no doubt the man's right. It's absolutely that way with me. Take, for instance, the fairly rummy matter of Lady Malvern and her son Wilmot. A moment before they turned up, I was just thinking how thoroughly all right everything was. It was one of those topping mornings, and I had just climbed out from under the cold shower, feeling like a two-year-old. As a matter of fact, I was especially bucked just then, because the day before I had asserted myself with Jeeves. Absolutely asserted myself, don't you know? You see, the way things have been going on, I was rapidly becoming a dashed serf. The man had jolly well oppressed me. I didn't so much mind when he made me give up one of my new suits, because Jeeves' judgment about suits is sound, but I as near as a toucher rebelled when he wouldn't let me wear a pair of cloth-topped boots, which I'd loved like a couple of brothers. And when he tried to tread on me like a worm in the matter of a hat, I jolly well put my foot down and showed him who was who. It's a long story, and I haven't time to tell you now, but the point is that he wanted me to wear the long acre, as worn by John Drew, when I had set my heart on the country gentleman, as worn by another famous actor chappie. And the end of the matter was that, after a rather painful scene, I bought the country gentleman. So that's how things stood on this particular morning, and I was feeling kind of manly and independent. Well, I was in the bathroom, wondering what there was going to be for breakfast while I massaged the good old spine with a rough towel and sang slightly, when there was a tap at the door. I stopped singing and opened the door an inch. What ho without there? Lady Malvern wishes to see you, sir, said Jeeves. Eh? Lady Malvern, sir. She is waiting in the sitting-room. Pull yourself together, Jeeves, my man, I said, rather severely, for I bar practical jokes before breakfast. You know perfectly well there is no one waiting for me in the sitting-room. How could there be when it's barely ten o'clock yet? I gather from her ladyship, sir, that she had landed from an ocean liner at an early hour this morning. This made the thing a bit more plausible. I remembered that, when I had arrived in America about a year before, the proceedings had begun at some ghastly hour like six, and that I had been shot out on to a foreign shore considerably before eight. Who the deuce is Lady Melvern, Jeeves? Her ladyship did not confide in me, sir. Is she alone? Her ladyship is accompanied by a Lord Pershore, sir. I fancy that his lordship would be her ladyship's son. Oh, well, put out rich raiment of sorts, and I'll be dressing. Our heather mixture lounge is in readiness, sir. Then lead me to it. While I was dressing, I kept trying to think who on earth Lady Malvern could be. It wasn't until I had climbed through the top of my shirt and was reaching out for the studs that I remembered. I've placed her, Jeeves. She's a pal of my Aunt Agatha. Indeed, sir. Yes, I met her at lunch one Sunday before I left London. A very vicious specimen. Writes books. She wrote a book on social conditions in India when she came back from the Durbar. Yes, sir. Uh, pardon me, sir, but not that tie. Eh? 
not that tie with the heather mixture lounge, sir. It was a shock to me. I thought I had quelled the fellow. It was rather a solemn moment. What I mean is, if I weakened now, all my good work the night before would be thrown away. I braced myself. What's wrong with this tie? I've seen you give it a nasty look before. Speak out like a man. What's the matter with it? Too ornate, sir. Nonsense. A cheerful pink, nothing more. Unsuitable, sir. Jeeves, this is the tie I wear. Very good, sir. Dash it, unpleasant. I could see that the man was wounded, but I was firm. I tied the tie, got into the coat and waistcoat, and went into the sitting-room. Hello, 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 I said. What? Ah, how do you do, Mr. Wooster? You have never met my son, Wilmot, I think. Motty, darling, this is Mr. Wooster. Lady Malvern was a hearty, happy, healthy, overpowering sort of dashed female, not so very tall, but making up for it by measuring about six feet from the O.P. to the prompt side. She fitted into my biggest armchair, as if it had been built round her by someone who knew they were wearing armchairs tight about the hips that season. She had bright, bulging eyes and a lot of yellow hair, and when she spoke she showed about fifty-seven front teeth. She was one of those women who kind of numb a fellow's faculties. She made me feel as if I were ten years old and had been brought into the drawing-room in my Sunday clothes to say, How do you do? Altogether, by no means the sort of a thing a chappie would wish to find in his sitting-room before breakfast. Motty, the son, was about twenty-three, tall and thin and meek-looking. He had the same yellow hair as his mother, but he wore it plastered down and parted in the middle. His eyes bulged, too, but they weren't bright. They were a dull gray with pink rims. His chin gave up the struggle about halfway down, and he didn't appear to have any eyelashes. A mild, furtive, sheepish sort of blighter, in short. "'Awfully glad to see you,' I said. "'So, you've popped over, eh? Making a long stay in America?' "'About a month.' Your aunt gave me your address and told me to be sure and call on you. I was glad to hear this, as it showed that Aunt Agatha was beginning to come round a bit. There had been some unpleasantness a year before when she had sent me over to New York to disentangle my cousin Gussie from the clutches of a girl on the music-hall stage. When I tell you that by the time I had finished my operations, Gussie had not only married the girl, but had gone on the stage himself and was doing well— You'll understand that Aunt Agatha was upset to no small extent. I simply hadn't dared to go back and face her, and it was a relief to find that time had healed the wound and all that sort of thing enough to make her tell her pals to look me up. What I mean is, much as I'd liked America, I didn't want to have England barred to me for the rest of my natural, and believe me, England is a jolly sight too small for anyone to live in with Aunt Agatha if she's really on the warpath. So I braced on hearing these kind words and smiled keenly on the assemblage. Your aunt said that you would do anything that was in your power to be of assistance to us. Rather? Oh, rather, absolutely. Thank you so much. I want you to put dear Motty up for a little while. I didn't get this for a moment. Put him up? For my clubs? No, no. 
Darling Mottie is essentially a home bird, aren't you, Mottie, darling? Mottie, who was sucking the knob of his stick, uncorked himself. Yes, mother, he said, and corked himself up again. I should not like him to belong to clubs. I mean put him up here. Have him to live with you while I am away. These frightful words trickled out of her like honey. The woman simply didn't seem to understand the ghastly nature of her proposal. I gave Mottie the swift east to west. He was sitting with his mouth nuzzling the stick, blinking at the wall. The thought of having this planted on me for an indefinite period appalled me. Absolutely appalled me, don't you know? I was just starting to say that the shot wasn't on the board at any price, and that the first sign Mottie gave of trying to nestle into my little home I would yell for the police, when she went on, rolling placidly over me, as it were. There was something about this woman that sapped a chappie's willpower. I am leaving New York by the midday train, as I have to pay a visit to Sing Sing Prison. I am extremely interested in prison conditions in America. After that I work my way gradually across to the coast, visiting the points of interest on the journey. You see, Mr. Wooster, I am in America principally on business. No doubt you read my book, India and the Indians? My publishers are anxious for me to write a companion volume on the United States. I shall not be able to spend more than a month in the country, as I have to get back for the season, but a month should be ample. I was less than a month in India, and my dear friend Sir Roger Cremorne wrote his America from Within after a stay of only two weeks. I should love to take dear Mahdi with me, but the poor boy gets so sick when he travels by train. I shall have to pick him up on my return. From where I sat I could see Jeeves in the dining-room, laying the breakfast-table. I wished I could have had a minute with him alone. I felt certain that he would have been able to think of some way of putting a stop to this woman. It will be such a relief to know that Mahdi is safe with you, Mr. Wooster. I know what the temptations of a great city are. Hitherto dear Mahdi has been sheltered from them. He has lived quietly with me in the country. I know that you will look after him carefully, Mr. Wooster. He will give very little trouble. She talked about the poor blighter as if he wasn't there. Not that Mahdi seemed to mind. He had stopped chewing his walking-stick and was sitting there with his mouth open. He is a vegetarian and a teetotaler, and is devoted to reading. Give him a nice book, and he will be quite contented. She got up. Thank you so much, Mr. Wooster. I don't know what I should have done without your help. Come, Motty. We have just time to see a few of the sights before my train goes. But I shall have to rely on you for most of my information about New York, darling. Be sure to keep your eyes open and take notes of your impressions. It will be such a help. Good-bye, Mr. Wooster. I will send Motty back early in the afternoon. They went out, and I howled for Jeeves. "'Jeeves! What about it?' "'Sir?' "'What's to be done? You heard it all, didn't you? You were in the dining-room most of the time. That pill is coming to stay here.' "'Pill, sir? The excrescence.' "'I beg your pardon, sir?' I looked at Jeeves sharply. This sort of thing wasn't like him. It was as if he was deliberately trying to give me the pip. Then I understood. The man was really upset about that tie. He was trying to get his own back. 
"'Lord Pershore will be staying from here tonight, Jeeves,' I said coldly. "'Very good, sir. Breakfast is ready, sir.' I could have sobbed into the bacon and eggs. That there wasn't any sympathy to be got out of Jeeves was what put the lid on it. For a moment I almost weakened and told him to destroy the hat and tie if he didn't like them, but I pulled myself together again. I was dashed if I was going to let Jeeves treat me like a bally one-man chain gang. But, what with brooding on Jeeves and brooding on Maudie, I was in a pretty reduced sort of state. The more I examined the situation, the more blighted it became. There was nothing I could do. If I slung Maudie out, he would report to his mother, and she would pass it on to Aunt Agatha, and I didn't like to think what would happen then. Sooner or later, I should be wanting to go back to England, and I didn't want to get there and find Aunt Agatha waiting on the quay for me with a stuffed eelskin. There was absolutely nothing for it but to put the fellow up and make the best of it. About midday, Monty's luggage arrived, and soon afterwards a large parcel of what I took to be nice books. I brightened up a little when I saw it. It was one of those massive parcels and looked as if it had enough in it to keep the chappie busy for a year. I felt a trifle more cheerful, and I got my country gentleman hat and stuck it on my head and gave the pink tie a twist and reeled out to take a bite of lunch with one or two of the lads at a neighboring hostelry. And what with excellent browsing and sluicing and cheery conversation and what not, the afternoon passed quite happily. By dinner time I had almost forgotten blighted Maudie's existence. I dined at the club and looked in at a show afterwards, and it wasn't till fairly late that I got back to the flat. There were no signs of Maudie, and I took it that he had gone to bed. It seemed rummy to me, though, that the parcel of nice books was still there with the string and paper on it. It looked as if Maudie, after seeing Mother off at the station, had decided to call it a day. Jeeves came in with the nightly whiskey and soda. I could tell by the chappie's manner that he was still upset. "'Lord Pershore gone to bed, Jeeves?' I asked, with reserved hauteur and what not. "'No, sir. His lordship has not yet returned.' "'Not returned? What do you mean?' His lordship came in shortly after six-thirty, and, having dressed, went out again. At this moment there was a noise outside the front door, a sort of scrabbling noise, as if somebody were trying to paw his way through the woodwork. Then a sort of thud. "'Better go and see what that is, Jeeves.' "'Very good, sir.' He went out and came back in again. "'If you would not mind stepping this way, sir, I think we might be able to carry him in.' "'Carry him in?' "'His lordship is lying on the mat, sir.' I went to the front door. The man was right. There was Maudie, huddled up outside on the floor. He was moaning a bit. "'He's had some sort of dashed fit,' I said. I took another look. "'Jeeves, someone's been feeding him meat.' "'Sir?' "'He's a vegetarian, you know. He must have been digging into a steak or something. Call up a doctor.' "'I hardly think it will be necessary, sir, if you will take his lordship's legs while I—' "'Great Scott, Jeeves, you don't think he—' "'Can't be. I am inclined to think so, sir.' And by Jove he was right. 
Once on the right track, you couldn't mistake it. Motty was under the surface. It was the deuce of a shock. You never can tell, Jeeves. Very seldom, sir. Remove the eye of authority, and where are you? Precisely, sir. Where is my wandering boy tonight, and all that sort of thing, what? It would seem so, sir. Well, we had better bring him in, eh? Yes, sir. So we lugged him in, and Jeeves put him to bed, and I lit a cigarette and sat down to think the thing over. I had a kind of foreboding. It seemed to me that I had let myself in for something pretty rocky. Next morning, after I had sucked down a thoughtful cup of tea, I went into Mottie's room to investigate. I expected to find the fellow a wreck, but there he was, sitting up in bed, quite chirpy, reading gingery stories. "'What ho?' I said. "'What ho?' said Mottie. "'What ho, what ho? "'What ho, what ho, what ho?' After that, it seemed rather difficult to go on with the conversation. "'How are you feeling this morning?' I asked. "'Topping,' replied Mottie, blithely and with abandon. "'I say, you know that fellow of yours, Jeeves, you know, is a corker. I had a most frightful headache when I woke up, and he brought me a sort of rummy dark drink, and it put me right again at once. Said it was his own invention. I must see more of that lad. He seems to me distinctly one of the ones.' I couldn't believe that this was the same blighter who had sat and sucked his stick the day before. "'You ate something that disagreed with you last night, didn't you?' I said, by way of giving him a chance to slide out of it if he wanted to. But he wouldn't have it at any price. "'No,' he replied firmly. "'I didn't do anything of the kind. I drank too much. Much too much. Lots and lots too much. And what's more, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it every night.' If ever you see me sober, old top, he said, and with a kind of holy exaltation, tap me on the shoulder and say, tut-tut, and I'll apologize and remedy the defect. But I say, you know, what about me? What about you? Well, I'm, so to speak, as it were, kind of responsible for you. What I mean to say is, if you go doing this sort of thing, I'm apt to get in the soup somewhat. I can't help your trouble, said Mottie firmly. Listen to me, old thing. This is the first time in my life that I've had a real chance to yield to the temptations of a great city. What's the use of a great city having temptations if fellows don't yield to them? Makes it so bally discouraging for a great city. Besides, Mother told me to keep my eyes open and collect impressions. I sat on the edge of the bed. I felt dizzy. I know just how you feel, old dear, said Mottie consolingly, and if my principles would permit it, I would simmer down for your sake. But duty first. This is the first time I've been let out alone, and I mean to make the most of it. We're only young once. Why interfere with life's morning? Young man, rejoice in thy youth. Tra-la, wat-ho. Put like that, it did seem reasonable. All my bally life, dear boy, Mottie went on, I've been cooped up in the ancestral home in Much Middlefold in Shropshire. Until you've been cooped up in Much Middlefold, you don't know what cooping is. The only time we get any excitement is when one of the choir boys is caught sucking chocolate during the sermon. When that happens, we talk about it for days. I've got about a month of New York, and I mean to store up a few happy memories for the long winter evenings. 
This is my only chance to collect a past, and I'm going to do it. Now tell me, old sport, as man to man, how does one get in touch with that very decent chappy Jeeves? Does one ring the bell or shout a bit? I should like to discuss the subject of a good stiff B&S with him. I had had a sort of vague idea, don't you know, that if I stuck close to Motty and went about the place with him, I might act as a bit of a damper on the gaiety. What I mean is, I thought that if, when he was being the life and soul of the party, he were to catch my reproving eye, he might ease up a trifle on the revelry. So the next night I took him along to supper with me. It was the last time. I'm a quiet, peaceful sort of chappie who has lived all his life in London, and I can't stand the pace these swift sportsmen from the rural districts set. What I mean to say is this. I'm all for rational enjoyment and so forth, but I think a chappie makes himself conspicuous when he throws soft-boiled eggs at the electric fan. And decent mirth and all that sort of thing are all right, but I do bar dancing on tables and having to dash all over the place dodging waiters, managers, and chuckers out just when you want to sit still and digest. Directly I managed to tear myself away that night and get home. I made up my mind that this was jolly well the last time I went about with Motty. The only time I met him late at night after that was once when I passed the door of a fairly low-down sort of restaurant and had to step aside to dodge him as he sailed through the air en route for the opposite pavement, with a muscular sort of looking chappie peering out after him with a kind of gloomy satisfaction. In a way, I couldn't help sympathizing with the fellow. He had about four weeks to have the good time that ought to have been spread over about ten years, and I didn't wonder at his wanting to be pretty busy. I should have been just the same in his place. Still, there was no denying that it was a bit thick. If it hadn't been for the thought of Lady Malvern and Aunt Agatha in the background, I should have regarded Maudie's rapid work with an indulgent smile. But I couldn't get rid of the feeling that sooner or later I was the lad who was scheduled to get it behind the ear. And what with brooding on this prospect, and sitting up in the old flat waiting for the familiar footstep, and putting it to bed when it got there, and stealing to the sick chamber the next morning to contemplate the wreckage, I was beginning to lose weight. Absolutely becoming the good old shadow, I give you my honest word. Starting at sudden noises and what not. And no sympathy from Jeeves. That was what cut me to the quick. The man was still thoroughly pipped about the hat and tie, and simply wouldn't rally round. One morning I wanted comforting so much that I sank the pride of the Woosters and appealed to the fellow direct. Jeeves, I said, this is getting a bit thick. Sir, business and cold respectfulness. You know what I mean. This lad seems to have chucked all the principles of a well-spent boyhood. He's got it up his nose. Yes, sir. Well, I shall get blamed, don't you know? You know what my Aunt Agatha is. Yes, sir. Very well, then. I waited a moment, but he wouldn't unbend. Jeeves, I said, haven't you any scheme up your sleeve for coping with this blighter? No, sir. And he shimmered off to his lair. Obstinate devil. So dash it absurd, don't you know? It wasn't as if there was anything wrong with that country gentleman hat. It was a remarkably priceless effort, and much admired by the lads. But just because he preferred the long acre, he left me flat. 
It was shortly after this that young Muddy got the idea of bringing pals back in the small hours to continue the gay revels in the home. This was where I began to crack under the strain. You see, the part of town where I was living wasn't the right place for that sort of thing. I knew lots of chappies down Washington Square Way who started the evening at about 2 a.m., artists and writers and what not, who frolicked considerably till checked by the arrival of the morning milk. That was all right. They like that sort of thing down there. The neighbors can't get to sleep unless there's someone dancing Hawaiian dances over their heads. But on 57th Street, the atmosphere wasn't right. And when Mahdi turned up at three in the morning with a collection of hardy lads, who only stopped singing their college song when they started singing The Old Oaken Bucket, there was a marked peevishness among the old settlers in the flats. The management was extremely terse over the telephone at breakfast time and took a lot of soothing. The next night I came home early. After a lonely dinner at a place which I had chosen because there didn't seem any chance of meeting Mahdi there, the sitting room was quite dark and I was just moving to switch on the light when there was a sort of explosion and something collared hold of my trouser leg. Living with Mahdi had reduced me to such an extent that I was simply unable to cope with this thing. I jumped backward with a loud yell of anguish and tumbled out into the hall just as Jeeves came out of his den to see what the matter was. Did you call, sir? Jeeves, there's something in there that grabs you by the leg. That would be Rollo, sir. Eh? I would have warned you of his presence, but I did not hear you come in. His temper is a little uncertain at present, as he has not yet settled down. Who the deuce is Rollo? His lordship's bull terrier, sir. His lordship won him in a raffle and tied him to the leg of the table. If you will allow me, sir, I will go in and switch on the light. There really is nobody like Jeeves. He walked straight into the sitting-room, the biggest feat since Daniel in the lion's den, without a quiver. What's more, his magnetism, or whatever they call it, was such that the dashed animal, instead of pinning him by the leg, calmed down as if it had had a bromide, and rolled over on his back with all of his paws in the air. If Jeeves had been his rich uncle, he couldn't have been more chummy. Yet directly he caught sight of me again, he got all worked up and seemed to have only one idea in life, to start chewing me where he had left off. Rollo is not used to you yet, sir, said Jeeves, regarding the bally quadruped in an admiring sort of way. He is an excellent watchdog. I don't want a watchdog to keep me out of my rooms. No, sir. Well, what am I to do? No doubt in time the animal will learn to discriminate, sir. He will learn to distinguish your peculiar scent. What do you mean, my peculiar scent? Correct the impression that I intend to hang about in the hall while life slips by in the hope that one of these days that dashed animal will decide that I smell all right. I thought for a bit. Jeeves, sir, I'm going away, tomorrow morning by the first train. I shall go and stop with Mr. Todd in the country. Do you wish me to accompany you, sir? No. Very good, sir. I don't know when I shall be back. Forward my letters. Yes, sir. As a matter of fact, I was back within the week. Rocky Todd, the pal I went to stay with, is a rummy sort of a chap who lives all alone in the wilds of Long Island, and likes it. But a little of that sort of thing goes a long way with me. 
Dear old Rocky is one of the best, but after a few days in his cottage in the woods miles away from anywhere, New York, even with Maudie on the premises, began to look pretty good to me. The days down on Long Island have forty-eight hours in them. You can't get to sleep at night because of the bellowing of the crickets, and you have to walk two miles for a drink and six for an evening paper. I thanked Rocky for his kind hospitality and caught the only train they have down in those parts. It landed me in New York about dinner time. I went straight to the old flat. Jeeves came out of his lair. I looked round cautiously for Rollo. Where's that dog, Jeeves? Have you got him tied up? The animal is no longer here, sir. His lordship gave him to the porter who sold him. His lordship took a prejudice against the animal on account of being bitten by him in the calf of the leg. I don't think I've ever been so bucked by a bit of news. I felt I had misjudged Rollo. Evidently, when you got to know him better, he had a lot of intelligence in him. Ripping, I said. Is Lord Pershore in, Jeeves? No, sir. Do you expect him back to dinner? No, sir. Where is he? In prison, sir. Have you ever trodden on a rake and had the handle jump up and hit you? That's how I felt then. In prison? Yes, sir. You don't mean in prison? Yes, sir. I lowered myself into a chair. Why? I said. He assaulted a constable, sir. Lord Pershore assaulted a constable? Yes, sir. I digested this. But, Jeeves, I say, this is frightful, sir. What will Lady Malvern say when she finds out? I do not fancy that her ladyship will find out, sir. But she'll come back and want to know where he is. I rather fancy, sir, that his lordship's bit of time will have run out by then. But supposing it hasn't? In that event, sir, it may be judicious to prevaricate a little. How? If I might make the suggestion, sir, I should inform her ladyship that his lordship has left for a short visit to Boston. Why Boston? Very interesting and respectable centre, sir. Jeeves, I believe you've hit it. I fancy so, sir. Why, this is really the best thing that could have happened. If this hadn't turned up to prevent him, young Mottie would have been in a sanatorium by the time Lady Malvern got back. Exactly, sir. The more I looked at it that way, the sounder this prison wee seemed to me. There was no doubt in the world that prison was just what the doctor ordered for Mottie. It was the only thing that could have pulled him up. I was sorry for the poor blighter, but after all I reflected, a chappie who had lived all his life with Lady Malvern, in a small village in the interior of Shropshire, wouldn't have much to kick at in a prison. Altogether I began to feel absolutely braced again. Life became like what that poet Johnny says, one grand sweet song. Things went on so comfortably and peaceably for a couple of weeks that I give you my word that I had almost forgotten such a person as Maudie existed. The only flaw in the scheme of things was that Jeeves was still pained and distant. It wasn't anything he said or did, mind you, but there was a rummy something about him all the time. 
Once, when I was tying the pink tie, I caught sight of him in the looking-glass. There was a kind of grieved look in his eye. And then Lady Malvern came back, a good bit ahead of schedule. I hadn't been expecting her for days. I'd forgotten how time had been slipping along. She turned up one morning while I was still in bed sipping tea and thinking of this and that. Jeeves flowed in with the announcement that he had just loosed her into the sitting-room. I draped a few garments round me and went in. There she was, sitting in the same armchair, looking as massive as ever. The only difference was that she didn't uncover the teeth, as she had done the first time. "'Good morning,' I said. "'So you've got back, what?' "'I have got back.' There was something sort of bleak about her tone, rather as if she had swallowed an east wind. This I took to be due to the fact that she probably hadn't breakfasted. It's only after a bit of breakfast that I'm able to regard the world with that sunny cheeriness which makes a fellow the universal favorite. I'm never much of a lad till I've engulfed an egg or two and a beaker of coffee. I suppose you haven't breakfasted? I have not yet breakfasted. Won't you have an egg or something, or a sausage or something, or something? No, thank you. She spoke as if she belonged to an anti-sausage society, or a league for the suppression of eggs. There was a bit of silence. I called on you last night, she said, but you were out. Awfully sorry. Had a pleasant trip. Extremely, thank you. See everything? Niagara Falls, Yellowstone Park, and the jolly old Grand Canyon, and what not? I saw a great deal. There was another slightly frappé silence. Jeeves floated silently into the dining-room and began to lay the breakfast-table. I hope Wilmot was not in your way, Mr. Wooster. I had been wondering when she was going to mention Mutty. Rather not. Great pals. Hit it off splendidly. You were his constant companion, then? Absolutely. We were always together. Saw all the sights, don't you know? We take in the Museum of Art in the morning, and have a bit of lunch at some good vegetarian place, and then toddle along to a sacred concert in the afternoon, and home to an early dinner. We usually play dominoes after dinner, and then the early bed and the refreshing sleep. We had a great time. I was awfully sorry when he went away to Boston. Oh, Wilmot is in Boston? Yes, I ought to have let you know, but of course we didn't know where you were. You were dodging all over the place like a snipe. I mean, don't you know, dodging all over the place, and we couldn't get at you. Yes, Mahdi went off to Boston. You're sure he went to Boston? Oh, absolutely. I called out to Jeeves, who was now messing about in the next room with forks and so forth. Jeeves, Lord Pershore didn't change his mind about going to Boston, did he? No, sir. I thought I was right. Yes, Mahdi went to Boston. Then how do you account, Mr. Wooster, for the fact that when I went yesterday afternoon to Blackwell's Island Prison to secure material for my book, I saw poor, dear Wilmot there, dressed in a striped suit, seated beside a pile of stones with a hammer in his hands? I tried to think of something to say, but nothing came. 
A chappie has to be a lot broader about the forehead than I am to handle a jolt like this. I strain the old bean till it creaked, but between the collar and the hair parting, nothing stirred. I was dumb, which was lucky because I wouldn't have had a chance to get any persiflage out of my system. Lady Malvern collared the conversation. She had been bottling it up, and now it came out with a rush. So this is how you have looked after my poor dear boy, Mr. Wooster. So this is how you have abused my trust. I left him in your charge, thinking that I could rely on you to shield him from evil. He came to you innocent, unversed in the ways of the world, confiding, unused to the temptations of a large city, and you led him astray. I hadn't any remarks to make. All I could think of was the picture of Aunt Agatha drinking all this in and reaching out to sharpen the hatchet against my return. You deliberately, far away in the misty distance, a soft voice spoke. If I might explain, your ladyship. Jeeves had projected himself in from the dining-room and materialized on the rug. Lady Malvern tried to freeze him with a look, but you can't do that sort of thing to Jeeves. He is look-proof. I fancy, your ladyship, that you have misunderstood Mr. Wooster, and that he may have given you the impression that he was in New York when his lordship was removed. When Mr. Wooster informed your ladyship that his lordship had gone to Boston, he was relying on the version I had given him of his lordship's movements. Mr. Wooster was away, visiting a friend in the country at the time, and knew nothing of the matter till your ladyship informed him. Lady Malvern gave a kind of grunt. It didn't rattle Jeeves. I feared Mr. Wooster might be disturbed if he knew the truth, as he is so attached to his lordship, and has taken such pains to look after him. So I took the liberty of telling him that his lordship had gone away for a visit. It might have been hard for Mr. Wooster to believe that his lordship had gone to prison voluntarily, and from the best motives, but your ladyship, knowing him better, will readily understand. What? Lady Malvern goggled at him. Did you say that Lord Pershore went to prison voluntarily? If I might explain, your ladyship, I think that your ladyship's parting words made a deep impression on his lordship. I have frequently heard him speak to Mr. Wooster of his desire to do something to follow your ladyship's instructions and collect material for your ladyship's book on America. Mr. Wooster will bear me out when I say that his lordship was frequently extremely depressed at the thought that he was doing so little to help. Absolutely, by Jove, quite pipped about it, I said. The idea of making a personal examination into the prison system of the country, from within, occurred to his lordship very suddenly one night. He embraced it eagerly. There was no restraining him. Lady Malvern looked at Jeeves, then at me, then at Jeeves again. I could see her struggling with the thing. "'Surely, your ladyship,' said Jeeves, "'it is more reasonable to suppose that a gentleman of his lordship's character went to prison of his own volition than that he committed some breach of the law which necessitated his arrest?' Lady Malvern blinked. Then she got up. "'Mr. Wooster!' she said. I apologize. I have done you an injustice. I should have known Wilmot better. I should have had more faith in his pure, fine spirit. 
Absolutely, I said. Your breakfast is ready, sir, said Jeeves. I sat down and dallied in a dazed sort of way with a poached egg. Jeeves, I said, you are certainly a lifesaver. Thank you, sir. Nothing would have convinced my Aunt Agatha that I hadn't lured that blighter into riotous living. I fancy you are right, sir. I champed on my egg for a bit. I was most awfully moved, don't you know, by the way Jeeves had rallied round. Something seemed to tell me that this was an occasion that called for rich rewards. For a moment I hesitated. Then I made up my mind. Jeeves? Sir? That pink tie? Yes, sir. Burn it. Thank you, sir. And Jeeves? Yes, sir. Take a taxi and get me that long-acre hat as worn by John Drew. Thank you very much, sir. I felt most awfully braced. I felt as if the clouds had rolled away and all was as it used to be. I felt like one of those chappies in the novels who calls off the fight with his wife in the last chapter and decides to forget and forgive. I felt I wanted to do all sorts of other things to show Jeeves that I appreciated him. Jeeves, I said, it isn't enough. Is there anything else you would like? Yes, sir. If I may make the suggestion, fifty dollars. Fifty dollars? It will help me enable to pay a debt of honor, sir. I owe it to his lordship. You owe Lord Pershore fifty dollars? Yes, sir. I happened to meet him in the street that night his lordship was arrested. I had been thinking a good deal about the most suitable method of inducing him to abandon his mode of living, sir. His lordship was a little overexcited at the time, and I fancy that he mistook me for a friend of his. At any rate, when I took the liberty of wagering him fifty dollars that he would not punch a passing policeman in the eye, he accepted the bet very cordially and won it. I produced my pocket-book and counted out a hundred. "'Take this, Jeeves,' I said. Fifty isn't enough.' "'Do you know, Jeeves, you're—well, you absolutely stand alone.' "'I endeavor to give satisfaction, sir,' said Jeeves. End of Jeeves and the Unbidden Guests